You're listening to Lost and Sound. My name's Paul Hanford. I'm a writer, a podcaster, and a DJ in Berlin. And I've always believed that one of the best ways we come together is through music. And through this series, we meet the innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the people who, when they make music, they do it utterly in their own way. Past guests have included Peaches, Chili Gonzalez, Ghost Poet, Leticia Sadier, and first and more. And each week, I have a conversation with someone who I think approaches music in a fresh and exciting way. Hey, how's it going? I hope you're good. I hope you're having a really, really fucking lovely day. I am in Berlin and I am on Bodenstrasse, which is in Neukölln. And I'm right by a bar called Ladak, which is 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 a really it's one of my favourite places to kind of go and get my laptop out, have a coffee, have a club mater. It's about four in the afternoon now, so it's a bit late for me to have a coffee, but I'll have a club mater and do a bit of work. And um, today on the show, you're going to hear a conversation I had about a month ago now with Ramona Gonzalez, a.k.a. Night Jewel. Um, I first became aware of her music towards the end of, of the noughties, really. And she was riding high at the time as an artist that managed to connect with people via MySpace, back in the day of MySpace. Um, and we talk a little bit about that era during the interview, about this kind of way that that does feel like a different era now the the myspace era the the blog era the the tumblr era it does feel like we've definitely 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 at some point in the last few years that became a different era which is kind of really strange really for me personally i don't know how you feel about it but for me it was something that you know very very much lived through um and we talk about that but the reason for the conversation is she has a new album coming out called No Sun, which totally transcends, I think, the music that she's done up until now. But not just that, it kind of, as you'll discover through the interview, it, it, it transcends the situation that she was in at the time, which um, she talks about. It's an amazing piece of work. She teaches... Um, she's a university teacher as well as making this music. And she also is doing a PhD in musicology and specifically about the role of laments in the history of music and looking at the role of the female voice in the history of music. And all of this does play into the conversation you're about to hear. So this is what happened when I had a chat 
on July the 21st with Ramona Gonzalez, a.k.a. Nightjaw. I have a little I have a little fan going um, in the background, so hopefully you don't hear that. Okay, good. No, that's all good. A, l- a little bit of Eno-esque ambience is always good for any kind of recording. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely true. We don't want, you know, a vacuum dead air, so that's good. No, that's absolutely good. How, how, how are things with you? How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Um, you know, I I have a million things going on right now, so I'm just trying to keep my, my head on. But yeah, everything is, is going well. Yeah. And you're, you're, in, uh, you're in LA? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what 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 is the vibe like in LA at the moment? Are things kind of like open, or is there a sense of what's the it's kind of open. sense? It's open. Um, it's tense. You know, uh, we've we've had one of the most like rigid lockdowns in the US. Mm. Um, so I think that there's like a tension in the sense that we feel at any moment we could be going back into lockdown. Mm. Um, and just because it's such a large city, it's so dense. Um, but at the moment, everything is open. I mean, you have to wear masks in supermarkets and stuff like that um, because of the variant. But, I mean, I went to a restaurant last night and everybody was having a great time. And I went to a bar on Sunday night. And, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? So we'll see. Yeah, it's very similar in Berlin, actually. It's kind of very much the same. I, I think there's this kind of sense of enjoying the things that feel safe to do whilst we can, because right. we don't know what's around the corner. But I've done a, exactly. a few restaurants, a few bars, and then, yeah, masks everywhere. But um, and, and how do you feel? Do you feel kind of sort of like, do you feel rooted at the moment or does it make you feel quite unstable? I... Well, I have been very lucky in this pandemic because I have been teaching and in school the entire time. Mm. I mean, I could say that I'm a bit unlucky because I was on Zoom constantly for over a year, but I have felt really rooted in the sense that that's just this like consistent thing that I'm always doing, um, even though I'm not on campuses. Uh, however, I think there's part of me that feels um, pretty anxious about the idea of particularly my students um, at Occidental College, the potential possibility that they would be on Zoom again in this coming year really frightens me for them more than anything, Um, just because uh, they just had such a difficult time. I felt for them so much, and I want them to be able to have the experience of learning in person, especially music. So I feel a bit of anxiety around that. With my own life, I'm so privileged. I mean, I make my own schedule. I, you know, I, I feel very like lucky. I have all my friends, and it's you know lots of outdoor space, and so I'm fine. But mm. I do feel anxious for young people. I, I have a similar thing in that I I teach music uh, culture oh, really? at university as well, and oh, cool. I, I only actually started doing it online this year. And it, I did I did start thinking a lot of the time that I'm speaking with these amazing kids who who actually really care about the kind of the cultural and social roots of music, but their entire university life has been on Zoom, you know, and they they haven't had that, those kind of rites of passage of, of like you know dorm life and yeah. All of the kind of messy stuff that perhaps students yeah. do and stuff. It must be very, very strange kind of growing up. 
being an 18, 18, 19 year old now than it was like when we were as well. Yeah. I mean, I already feel like they're faced with a lot of difficulty just with um, how virtual life is anyway. Even when you do have in-person classes, so much of life is on, you know, social media. Um, I just, uh, you know, feel for them. The inability to socially connect on certain levels um, just feels really tough. I try to make my classes as interactive as possible. I mean, I really try to make it fun and, you know, meet with students all the time and one-on-one and, and really hang with them. But I'm just hoping that, uh, you know, we can stay open and, and I can teach them in the flesh. Yeah. Cause it's like, you, you, have you been teaching? Cause you did, uh, this has come out of the PhD you did, the teaching. Sort of. Actually, it's kind of separate, which is funny. Um, I teach a little bit at UCLA. Actually, I teach audio technology there over the summers sometimes in a TA, but, um, the job at Occidental College was totally separate. I, uh, I graduated from there in 2009. Um, I did a, I've done a couple lectures there about music and music business. Anyways, a, a position opened up for a songwriting teacher and I applied and then I kind of just got into the, you know, department that way. Um, now I teach music business there. Um, I'm going to be teaching audio technology in the spring. Um, hopefully I'll get to teach a musicology course at some time, at some point, not just mm. music industry, even though I love songwriting and stuff like that, but I'm, I'm really wanting to do more like, uh, you know, analytical sort of research, um, with the students. But of course, music industry is the most popular stuff, you know, production, which mm. I love teaching that too. I hope one uh, down the line, maybe I can teach a class on laments, you know, throughout mm. history or something like that. Um, but yeah, that's a separate job and it just kind of came about through happenstance and I just, I love it and I'm, I'm so appreciative to have the position. It's a nice, it's a small school, so, you know, it's small classes and really intimate. Yeah. And, and how, how do you find the kind of the different, the different things that you do? You know, is it easy to switch from, you know, because your music, particularly on the new album, it's like so deep and it seems to come from such Thanks. a different place that and yeah. then you're also kind of going in and teaching about music business and stuff like that. Does it, does <laughs> yeah. it require kind of quite a different kind of a different way of getting into your a different headspace? I'll tell you what uh, it does. But the funny thing is, is that the the album uh is two, there's m- multiple processes that go on um stages um and right now i have had the album written for some time um and at this point is is the part of that is actually music business and has has been music business for the past 6 months um i don't see music business necessarily as solely marketing i mean the way that i teach it is that um, I teach about artistic vision and talking about your project and talking about your music and where it's situated historically and also contemporaneously. So for me, it's like kind of this is the music business portion of, of my album, for better or for worse. I mean, I love the creative process, obviously. It's my favorite part. But I actually love interviews. I love talking about my music. I love writing about my music um, and, you know, putting ideas together about where what it means and what it's trying to say. But certainly the process of writing this album was a very, very, very different mental sort of process than what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. And I would say that um, it, it, it's like thinking about the stage that I was in when I wrote it and my objectivity towards it now sometimes those different emotional states come crashing into each other and and i'm like 
feeling a little bit like dizzy or something, you know, because mm. I'm so inside of it, but then I also have to be outside of it. Uh, and so that can get a little sort of confusing at times for sure. Yeah. Is, is there a sense sometimes of getting so deep into the kind of the creative process of writing that you're talking about like different things kind of crashing together? Do you do you feel because uh, again, like, you know, talking about the new album, there's definitely sort of a very deepness and the themes in it and where you're at when you were writing it. Um, was it was it something you had to kind of push yourself into doing or or or? You know, was this something that more that you just felt that you had to do? Is it, I mean, in a kind of way, is it, is it kind of like scary to go into those depths? It's funny. Uh, I, it's not at all. Um, I think that it's really tough for me to write music from a very sort of like plaintive sort of place. Um, I, I tend to write when there's some sort of chaotic time going on. Mm. And it, I utilize it to be able to sort of like collect myself. Um, and at the time I had that I, I started writing No Sun, I started writing it in the beginning of 2018, actually, in it, and it was just instrumental. So I, I was really just creating sequences, um, on my sequencer and improvising for like 15, 20 minutes at a time. I wasn't adding vocals. And so it was a very natural process. I just sort of was experimenting and, 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 and keeping note of, of kind of like the, parameters of those experiments um like what instruments i was using um what i was trying to do eventually as the lyrics started to form and the songs began to emerge it was very natural because i was just trying to process what was going on in my life yeah. um i i became homeless for about six weeks and i don't say that in a sort of dramatic way i just didn't have a place to live um yeah. for about six weeks and i carried my studio setup along with me and I just continued to write. I mean, it was, it was just a way for me to make sense of the world, um, in a time that everything was crashing down. And I think my life was scary at that point. Music was the thing that wasn't scary, you know? Right. So music was the kind of, was it like a kind of a diary? Yeah, a little bit. I think, I think it's not, it's almost like a diary, but then it's, it's actually something like more composed because mm. I, I think what happens with my music and I think a lot of singer songwriters is, you have this sort of like burst of emotion, but then you have to constrain it and craft it and contain it. So it's kind of like maybe the third draft of a novella or something that you're like piecing together in your mind. Um, and it certainly comes from your personal experience, but it's, it's art, you know, so it's, you're crafting it as you go. You have a sense that, ah, I'm going to make this into a song. This is, this is this part, you know, this is yeah. this lyric that goes with this lyric. Um, so it's 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 a combination of things, um, but it was a way for me to make peace at the time, for sure. Yeah, and if you don't mind me asking, we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to as well. But the, the process of the album came about after after a very long breakup that you had gone through. Is that something you feel comfortable to talk about? Or oh, sure, sure, yeah. yeah. I I it was actually it was a very sudden. Well, I guess it was sort of like a slow burn to the to the dissolution, but. My um, ex-husband and I were together for 12 years. We were, you know, partners in crime for so long. We made music together. He's a super talented musician. Um, we suddenly uh, separated. Um, and not so sudden, but also sudden, you know. It feels yeah. like it's coming, but then at the same time, it's just, wait, what happened? And when you can't um, believe it when it actually does, you're just like, oh. Exactly. Yeah. It was actually quite fast considering how long the relationship was i feel like the actual breakup itself was very sudden um and so it 
it was like very chaotic in that sense. But the breakup itself didn't last that long. It, he was very certain of that this was the necessary thing to do. I was sort of hanging on a little bit there, unable to sort of separate. It was, you know, um, we were essentially merged, you know, at that mm. point after 12 years being together. Um, we're still, we managed to stay very close friends and we're still, you know, I mean, we're just beyond any sort of like pettiness uh, yeah. as far as being partners, you know. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a very difficult time, but most of the songs for No Sun were written between July 2018 and like October 2018. There's one track that's instrumental on the album that was written much before, uh, no, number 14. That was written in the spring before, but most of them were in a super compact period of time when I was just trying to tap into this sensation that I was having that felt very real. Um, and, um, there's a lot of emotions, anger, resentment, sadness, uh, you know, a feeling of freedom. I mean, there was just so many potent possibilities, um, that I knew I had to get them out as quickly as possible. And it's interesting, isn't it? Like you're saying as quickly as possible, because though that, that sort of heightened sense of emotion and being in contact with yourself, um, I know when I've done stuff that kind of shrinks after a while, you know, you kind of forget about those minute of those moments don't you absolutely mm -hmm. and, and were there any things during that process that now you kind of think oh my god <laughs> looking back at the mm -hmm. time that the kind of the depth of it you know does it surprise you absolutely I you know so I do study laments in um, mm. my research women's laments and um, part of my research is about thinking about how my my work as an artist is a form of investigation or research into the history of women's laments or the case studies that I'm inquiring about. You know, my my position as an artist is is a particular uh, almost research position, and it it's a reciprocal relationship. How I view myself, how I make art, and also how I view other people's art. So because of that, there's been a lot of opportunities in my um, program to write about my art and write about my work in the context of laments, women's laments. And it gave me the opportunity to revisit and essentially analyze my music, musically, uh, textually, and also more philosophically or conceptually. Um, and yeah, it's, it's surprising, I think, because... You know, when I'm, when you're creating a song, you're thinking about it and you're crafting it. But the music, when you're playing chords, when you're singing melodies, you know, there's, there, you're, I'm not thinking, okay, I'm going to definitely go to this chord right now because it's, you know, the fourth of the home key. I'm not like thinking about stuff like mm. that. I'm just going, right? Mm. But when I looked back and I started analyzing the songs, there were definitely tropes of sad songs, tropes of laments both in the melody and the harmony and the construction that I was utilizing in these tunes that I was almost just completely, uh, only subconsciously aware of. Mm. So that to me tells me something about, you know, when, when an artist is crafting a sad song, they're using techniques and conventions from music history to let their audience know this is a sad song. And that's exactly what I was doing. So that mm. was shocking to me because it's like, whoa, the brain is so mysterious. How do I, how does it do that? You know what I mean? So that was, that was pretty fascinating to me. 
Yeah, and that, that's interesting to kind of, because I always wonder with things like that, like how much of that is because we have this kind of socialised subconscious back catalogue in our minds of what, what sad music is and how much um, goes beyond that and is sort of taps into something that goes beyond music that is just... Mm-hmm inherently sad or inherently melancholic or happy or or something like that maybe music comes from these inherent places or do or is this something we've attached to it like language yeah it's a it's a little bit of both i mean you think about when people were trying to figure out how music and emotion were attached which has been a thing something that people have been trying to figure out you know, since the beginning of time. But there are particular moments in time where composers were experimenting with how to communicate sadness, mm. you know? I mean, we think that that's a given, but it's a pretty modern notion, actually. Um, you know, before, like, you know, the 1600s, 1500s, people didn't really think about, like, music imitating sadness. You know, mm. it was about music following certain, you know, counterpuntal rules. Mm. Um and so these composers were thinking, how do we communicate sadness? How do we communicate happiness or power or whatever? Maybe it's really fast. That's, that's happy. Mm. Happy is really fast. It's like, you know, so I think that people have been trying to figure it out. And we've sort of, we're in a lineage of like when those conventions were designed. Mm. But then there's also these inherent things. Women's laments, right? Women's voices. Something about them has this power to communicate grief and always has been. Since very, 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 very long time ago. Mm. Um, wailing, crying, screeching, you know, certain timbres of the voice. That's not something that a composer decided. That's just something that as a culture, people knew was going to summon some sort of incredibly evocative feeling. Um, mm. So it's both, you know. That's so interesting. And like, um, and with the laments, how did your interest in, in, in uh, studying women's laments first come about? It was so roundabout, you know, it's like, it always happens like that with research, you know, um, but I think what it initially was, was, um, artists that I'm obsessed with, you know, and my own work. So I'm thinking, you know, uh, if I'm going to be a researcher, I need to research something that's close to me that I know about, you know, write about what you know. I'm not going to write about Beethoven. It's mm. not in my wheelhouse. Okay. <laughs> Love Beethoven. I'm not going to write about him. Um, but I was thinking about, um, contemporary pop singers. Like, um, one of the papers I've done is on, uh, Rosalia, the flamenco mm. artist. Um, I'm doing a paper on Sade. Um, do- doing research on Lana Del Rey. My contention was like, there's pop singers doing laments all the time. I mean, it- it's almost like the most common thing that women are singing about and doing. Mm. Um, and they're, they're doing it and they're crafting it and they're these sort of, you know, agents of this, of the sad expression. And yet people want to believe that there's this like one-to-one correspondence between the music and them, that they're these sad creatures, but they're actually really powerful creatures and they're actually, you know, really sort of badass. And I thought, what is that? What is that like sort of disjunct that's going on with audiences and their perception of women as being Mm. sort of, uh, you know, visceral sort of just vessels for emotion and not, you know, producers of their, of their work. And I thought, I kind of feel annoyed about that sometimes when Mm. people judge me. So I, that's how the research began was sort of like thinking about these artists that I love. I mean, there's so many more, you know, there's like Dolly Parton. I mean, I mean, there's just like a million people that you could think about globally that are doing this kind of stuff in pop music. 
as I began to research this very sort of weird uh, connection between me and these other pop singers and, and sad songs, it just took me immediately to the lament tradition. Mm. That's just musicology. You know, that's what people write about. When they write about women doing sad songs, it's, it's, it's the history of laments. Um, people don't write as much about pop music and musicology. I mean, they do, but mm. no one's written about this. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, no one's written about Sade in musicology. <laughs> you know? mm. So um, it's a very historical discipline. So it took me to that history, and I just became incredibly fascinated with that tradition and um, also the sort of patriarchal perspective um, against women's laments in, you know, very late BCE. Mm. And um, I thought that was so interesting. The gender dynamics um, with respect to women's voices. I thought, well, that's fascinating. Maybe that has something to do with our perception of these women today. Mm. And so that's, that's where, that's where I began. So, because there, there is still this kind of gender perception, uh, the gender dynamics that goes on, you know, like in terms of certain patriarch patriarchal points of view, that uh, that often women, women particularly who sing emotionally, are seen, like you mentioned, as seen as being sort of part of a chain that involves male producers, that involves this and that, you know, and obviously it's in, in quite, I, me being in Berlin as well, I encounter this all the time. The amount of friends I've got that are a, a female or, or non-binary, that they're still kind of constantly accused of maybe they've got a ghost producer, <laughs> maybe they've got a, this and that. And obviously, you know, with your album, you know, you've, every stage of this has been meticulously crafted by you right right into like you know the marketing side that you're saying there is this kind of like where you know from your perspective um as a as a teacher as well this must be so interesting to kind of pass on this information to your students about the whole process and about the the power that that lies within all of the realms that you can do or other women or other producers can do Definitely. I think um, I try to impart that, um, I mean, especially to my female students. Look it up. If you have a question about production, look it up. Yeah. But I also try to say, if you want to work with another producer, that's fine too. I don't believe in female exceptionalism. I think it's toxic um, that you know, a woman should, who doesn't do every single thing is somehow less than... Um, or less of a feminist. I mean, the whole point of my research is to say, okay, even if this woman is just an opera singer, singing a Monteverdi piece, uh, or, you know, an a Wagner, uh, you know, opera, a cycle, um, and they're tearing, they're ripping their clothes off, they're singing, you know, in this incredibly technical fashion, and it's just like, emotion is just coming off of the stage. It's a male composer. But what about our culture says that that woman, that singer, is a vessel for him. Mm. That's that's the dynamic that I'm uh, sort of trying to deconstruct. Because clearly, this woman is doing something more than just, you know, spitting out what a man had to say. Mm. Um, I think that female singers who don't compose their own work are ac- absolutely agents of their expression. Um, and there's a lot going on in that vocal performance that we're not attuned to because we don't understand the skill or the technique or the science. You know, women in ancient Greece weren't composing their own songs. They were improvising. They were singing, in some cases, singing uh, melodies that were stock melodies or, you know, chants or 
a text that had been passed on over time. So they weren't making original music, but they were hired professionally to vocalize because women's voices have the power to awaken the dead, right? Mm. That was an empowered position. What nowadays we kind of judge those vocalists. Mm. And I'm saying whether you produce all your music, whether you're a singer alone, we need to change our perception of what women are doing, period. Mm. Right? No matter what they're doing, they're more than just emoting. That's for sure. Mm. Right? So that's the kind of thing that I've tried to impart to my students who are, who are non-male is just whatever way that you want to present agency in your work is, is your way. And then I just try to give them all the tools to do so. Mm. And whatever they want to use for my toolbox is, is perfectly fine, as long as it's true to them and they're doing the work. Yeah, because it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. And it's like someone who maybe is a producer, male or female, they're, and they're using electronic equipment. They're, they're, they don't have to, they don't say like songs written by them and Ableton as well. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Which is so true. Because yeah, Roland don't Jesus get a credit. Christ. I mean, I mean, Jesus Christ, Ableton is writing songs for people. I mean, now <laughs> they have this, you know, new plugin where you can just play in any key. I mean, you know, so the, the concept of agency in electronic music and music in general is, is, is extremely complicated, extremely complicated. And I'm not even trying to really get at what is agency, mm. what is not agency. I'm more trying to talk about the artistic process of songwriting mm. as a female singer particularly with sad songs and what is the process that happens. And I think my album really speaks to that because although I was experiencing intense emotion and, and loss and grief at the same time, like I said, I had to take all of that and I had to put it into a box and craft it into a song. So what's that jump that happens between the emotion and the craft? There's something that changes there. And I think that we're not as aware of that shift for artists as we should be we think it's just emotion all the way but no 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 we are we're doing a lot of plotting in that process you know mm. and and you know i i heard that the album you began by like and as you mentioned earlier on you know you you had like these instrumental tracks and this is uh was this all on moog or was this kind of just quite a bit on moog or i think every song was written yeah, on the Moog, I'm trying to... Yep, I, every single one was, was bega began as a sequence. Right. And, and is this an old analog one or, or like a digital No, it's one? a new... It's a new... Yeah. Um, well, it's analog. Half, I mean, it has... It's half analog. You can save mm. patches, but um, uh, it's the Moog Mother 32. Mm. Have you heard of it? It's like a tiny I... little half modular. It's, it's... Everyone loves it because it's like an easy sequencer, yeah. you know? And it sounds... Awesome, and it's pretty reasonably priced for a Moog, you know, it's like, so, so basically what I would do, I wouldn't use like the digital, I wouldn't save any sequences. I would just use the analog sequencer and it drifts in and out of time, it drifts in and out yeah. of tuning. Um, and I would just, I'd create a sequence that I felt was interesting or, or simple enough or whatever. And I, I would just start it and I record into Ableton, into the skeleton with no grid. And I would just improvise along to it for, for long periods of time, trying to sort out some sort of melody or harmony or something like that. I love the thing of, of like with 
analog or half analog like you were saying kind of things drift in and out of time there's a certain amount of like you can't really control everything that's going to come out of that um did you feel like there was sort of did that give you energy itself the kind of sort of the chance or maybe you know you get a you get a sound at one point that you really love and then you kind of go how how the fuck did I get that sound where, yeah, where is yeah, that yeah. where is that sound yeah, again yeah you can't really get it back I I think um I would I would stay on certain things for long periods so I would I try to be super patient so if I got a patch I really liked I would try to record with it for at least four to five minutes doing various things you know what I mean like trying to be mm. smart about it like this is the plotting that I'm talking about um, I've recorded analog forever. So like my first record was analog on eight track. One second of love was analog on two track. Um, and then I did a bunch of records, you know, on Ableton and stuff like that, but I'm really used to recording analog. Like I've done it off and on for so long. So I kind of like know what to, the do's and don'ts. Don'ts are like only just, okay, I got it. I got it. I'm going to switch it. It's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> just yeah. let it roll, let it roll, mm. you know? Yeah, and like with the eight track as well. I mean, so you made your first album with the eight track. Were you doing because I, I started off with the four track work when I used to make nice. music, and I always remembered there was this kind of point where I mean, like you'd have to make a decision whether you're going to bounce the tracks down or not. Um, Tough decision. That's a, that's a big bit of plotting as well, <laughs> it's isn't big, it? It's a big yeah. bit of plotting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I. Man, I struggled with that, and I made some mistakes along the way. You know, like accidentally putting a couple things together that were not the right things to put together. I mean, it was my first record. Mm. Remember one of like the biggest things I did incorrectly was recording the bass all on track one, like the whole record. <laughs> yeah. And when I asked somebody about that, they were like, that's the, the skinniest part of the tape. And that like makes the bass not as fat or something. And I was yeah. like, who knew? But the, the thing I remember about that process was if I had a drum loop, um, let's say, um, and I did have drum loops for like most of the songs on that record. I think every single song on that record, I would record it for about 15 minutes. Mm. You know what I mean? Giving myself plenty of time to like play the song multiple times over that or just extend it or whatever. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't, don't record the drums for three minutes and 30 seconds yeah. or whatever is your um, baseline sort of rhythmic element. And in this, in the case of the new record, it was the sequencer was my baseline. Yeah. Cause I remember that as well. And, and like I do the same thing about recording the drums or whatever the baseline track was for quite a long period of time. And then sort of recording it in real time as well. You have this kind of feeling that you can kind of, I don't know, I'd kind of walk off and make a cup of tea. But yeah, I'd, yeah, exactly. I'd, I'd, I'd hear it coming through my speakers <laughs> and it's sort of, you totally. feel like you're kind of channeling into it, don't you? Absolutely. Well. Yeah, it, it it goes into your, yeah, I remember playing, recording things for a certain period of time, going into the, you know, kitchen or into my bedroom and uh, a melody coming into my head. And just be like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, you know, <laughs> things like that. It's, yeah, it's giving yourself the space. You know, I think like, and I don't get me wrong. I love writing pop songs. I, I I teach songwriting, right? I I teach kids how to craft a very straight ahead pop song, you know, and and I love doing that for fun, and I still do it. But but there's something to be said about the you know process, the mental process of stopping and starting, of looking at a chunk and like stopping and being like, okay, that's the verse, and then being like, what is a good melody for that? It's just it turns it into sort of like formula thinking as opposed mm. to improvisatory thinking. 
Um, and there's nothing wrong, this is like inherently with formula thinking, but with this record, it was super important to me to get outside of the formula, um, to mm. be able to express what I wanted to express. Yeah, and it really did, because I mean, I love it. I mean, I really love No Sun, and I feel like I, I really enjoyed all of Thanks. your work, but I, I have to admit with this one, it feels like it's the album where, you know, um, it feels like it kind of leaves anything resembling like anything else in, in a way like you know it feels that it sort of goes to the sort of realm of like sort of like there's a track the nearest thing I can think of reminds me of I think it's track the one that's just called 14 and I was listening to that and then the nearest thing I could think of was something like sort of you know in a silent way, Miles Davis or, or something. Ah, that's so nice. That's like too that. nice. It, it feels like, it feels like sort of like music that's traveling, if you know what I mean. It's sort of. I absolutely yeah. know what you mean. Uh, that's so nice of you. I mean, I've never received a better compliment, but you know, I grew up with jazz music and, mm. um, and I grew up as a jazz singer and pianist and, um, I was never good as a pianist. I was never great, but you know, this is the, this, this, uh, exploratory music is what I grew up listening to. Um, I mean, of course I also listened to pop and off pop and left field weird sort of like eighties bin records. And I love that too. Don't get me wrong, but I wanted this album to speak to that history of my musical practice that I probably never really sort of showed to the public. Yeah. And so going back to like the very early days and you first getting into music and were there any kind of moments where you felt that, music wasn't just something that you love maybe listening to, but maybe music is something that you're, you're going to be doing. Yeah. Not as, not as a pop indie pop musician, but at certain points when I was doing jazz music um, in high school and in college, you know, I thought uh, I love singing jazz, you know, Mm. it's so fun. I love playing bands and stuff like that. And I did feel that it was like something I would love to continue to do forever, whether I was like, you know, an old lady singing at some like, you know, bar or whatever, (laughs) you know, I just like, (laughs) was like, I always want to do this. Um, the, as far as having a career in more popular music, no, it was, it was completely unexpected. I, I was an academic, you know, I, I was studying philosophy at, in college and I was planning to go to graduate school and, you know, I'm back in graduate school because mm. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nerd through and through. And that's always, <laughs> I want to, I want to write and, mm. and stuff like that. So it is, it, I'm a bit of a reluctant pop performer, to be honest. And I love it, but it, 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 well, it never fails to amaze me that people support my music and, and want to like, you know, put, put it out there. Um, it, I feel really grateful to be honest, especially with this record. I feel extremely grateful that people are responding to it because it is a little out there, you know? It's a little out there. And so I'm like, I'm just like, oh, yay, you know? <laughs> it, is out, it is out there. But I think sometimes it's like I think of other, you know, again, things like Astral Weeks by Van Morrison or, you know, um, albums that do feel that they just kind of like, you know, you know what the artist did beforehand and you like that. Then you hear this and it sort of takes that and it sort of, takes it to somewhere else um but like also like back when you were beginning as well um there was it was sort of about this time that I've only just really realized quite recently is a different time now like because I I feel connected to that time as well you know we're talking like kind of myspace uh, yeah. we're talking blog culture um such a know, good time such a good such time amazing we didn't appreciate time. it we didn't yeah. appreciate it 
we didn't appreciate it did we like now you know and then some somehow a few you know in the last few years this, the world seems to have shifted to somewhere else in so many different ways and, and stuff like that do you what's it what's the sort of like do you what is the sort of fondness of that time for you now looking back oh man I mean there was so much that I feel uh, grateful to have experienced one being the internet as like sort of user forward um, and connecting with people online in a way that felt so organic. Um, and, uh, that was one thing. Um, just feeling like the internet was really, really fun. Um, and not because people were sharing memes, because people were connecting with each other. It was, it was, like I said, very like user based. And, um, also just, uh, I think fondly about performing in LA at that time and just doing like a hundred really, really scrappy shows around town and, friends coming by and seeing me perform with like just a Juno and a microphone at a gallery and dancing. And, you know, th this was just like my life for two years was, you know, underground music in LA. And it was incredibly uh, interesting time. I mean, I think about a performance I saw of Julia Holter's at the smell where she was sitting on the ground playing a harmonium and doing like, I think it was like a Brian Eno cover or something like that. I remember just being like, holy crap. This girl is a genius, you know, and it, like little experiences like that where you really felt like you were on the precipice of something great with all these musicians around. Um, and it just felt really innocent. There, we weren't thinking about marketing. We weren't thinking about algorithms. We weren't thinking about, you know, formulas at all or like how to appeal to, you know, Daniel X, whatever marketing process on <laughs> Spotify. I mean, some songs right now sound like, like Daniel Ek made them. You know what I mean? And yeah. it just feels like people are really trying to appease uh, the algorithm. And uh, I feel like, you know, you're talking to a technology. You're not talking to people. And that can, that sounds hard, you know, because um, people are what, what make music exciting, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like you said earlier on with this album going off the grid in terms of like how yes. you use the technology and, and there's, there's simple things like that that people can do that they don't automatically think to do because it's not, the equipment isn't set up with the grid off. You know, you have to turn yeah. that off. <laughs> 4, 4, <laughs> 1, <20. laughs> I think also because it's hard and I think people think that they need, they, they're, they're there's a perception that speed is a, is a virtue nowadays. Whereas back then in the MySpace days, mm. you know, we weren't really thinking about speed. I think we were shocked at how fast things happened. So like I, you know, put up some songs on MySpace and I think within about six months or maybe eight a year, uh, I think that I started getting reviews. And to us, that was really, really fast because there were other artists around me who had been working at it for 12 years or something and never been written about on any sort of big blog or anything. So at six months to a year was like, whoa, that, that is like, she's rocketing, you know? Uh, and that's a different tempo than nowadays, which is like, if you, if you, you feel like if you don't get a certain amount of plays in a week, you're a failure. I mean, that's just an impossible sort of, rubric for any artist i feel um we need time to develop and think and you know the programs that we use to make music are designed to speed up our process but i don't know if that's the best thing for people i think you know what what's this obsession you know we're not going anywhere i mean at least not yet <laughs> yeah. so 
I think artists are afraid to take their time. Um, and that's, that's too bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know who told me this. I don't know even if, if it, it's actually true or if I dreamt it or not, but someone, someone recently told me it took, uh, people a hundred years to get used to prints existing. And, <laughs> and we, we've had like 20 years of, of more or less of, of digital culture, you know, digital dominance. And, and like you were saying, I don't, I don't know if we're, We've really figured out our way. I hope we will do. I'm sure we will do. But I don't think we've figured out our correct, the best way for us to maintain the quickness of everything. Really. No, we haven't. And uh, you just don't get the time to relish as much. Mm. You know, there's so much just like dopamine going up and down, you know. Um, the slow play is just, it's always going to feel better. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I will say at the same time, as just a counterpoint to like mm. the sort of like old timey way I'm talking about technology, yeah. Yeah. I will say that something I really do appreciate about Ableton, uh, especially being super user friendly and about new Dawson technologies is that as a teacher, it really allows me to speak to students who don't have training in music. Um, who are intimidated by music, especially, you know, people from sort of like marginalized communities that maybe don't have the access. Um, you, you know, women, I teach Ableton to these students and I, I will say it's very, um, life affirming to be able to take a student who is extremely insecure and maybe doesn't have the training and be able to make music. You know, um, that, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so I do feel like that to me is, is really, um, I feel, I feel excited to share that with students and see their, how wide they are to be able to making you make music. That's kind of a universal thing. You know, when you start making music, it's just like the most exciting thing. That technology is, and that teaching of technology is one aspect. The other aspect, which I almost feel is like unrelated is the marketing, uh, streaming, you know, digital distribution. That's another form of technology that I feel can be a bit toxic to artists, mm. but I don't want to conflate the two. You know what I mean? Because I feel like that would be, you know, flippant of me to do so. There, there's, there's so many great things that I'm seeing with, um, how, how students are u- utilizing um, does to express themselves that I'm really excited about. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you as well. I, I think I'm probably reiterating what you just said, but one of the things that I feel is that um, the, the sort of hierarchy of who has access to be able to make music, whether it's through education or money or positioning in the world, you know, um, is being removed through, through uh, a, a Stuff, software like Ableton through stuff like that through play things that you know anyone can kind of like is more likely to be able to get a crack piece of software even if they can't afford it you know? yeah exactly and, and, that, and that is fantastic to think and also to think that some things are made so user-friendly that you know someone can communicate their ideas across you know without exactly. having to be you know have have the luck of Beethoven to be able to yeah play. exactly yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think back when I was first starting out and, you know, I, I had, I, I did not grow up with money and I did not have a lot of advantages. And my friend sent me an eight track in the mail and said, start, start recording. 
That must have I mean, been the I, nicest day in the world. I mean, it was incredible. He also sent me like a really, really cool Tascam, um, a track that's like very nice and that I still have to this day. And um, I like it wasn't just like your average four track. It was like a mm. decent, hefty eight track. Um, and uh, if he hadn't sent me that, I don't know if Nigel would have been born, you know. And so it's important for, for me to play that role with students now. You know, they, they may not want to record on eight track. Some of them aren't interested in analog, and I and I talk to them about it. I think it's the way that you teach these technologies, the way that you talk about them, you know, your taste, um, whether you're communicating um, art artistry to students, you know, that's like the things that they need to hear. And I think as a business, music business professor, I really, really try to impart that, you know, don't don't burn up, you know, if your your flash in the pan is is something that will always go down, you know. You can you can be that artist if you want to, but it's going to be short lived, and then it's then it's done. You know, artistic vision is important. You know, that's the that's the long game, and that's how people sustain a career in this industry. Do you want to have a career, or do you want to have you know some attention for a few months? What's your desire? You can have either desire, but I'm going to be teaching you how to do this this one thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's it's a it sometimes feels like a dismal time for the industry, but I I try my best to make good artists out of these these kids um, if I can. You know, just like put them put the good artists out into the world. You know, if if I'm able to. Yeah, that's lovely. And, and like, do you just on a on a personal nature? What what are, the, are there? What are the kind of things that you sort of come to your head that you do yourself to kind of stay in check with yourself to to kind of like you know sort of kind of re-encounter as much as possible the kind of source of where your ideas come from and who you are it's 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 difficult when you're only doing your music career um you know i think that as uh you know, indie musicians, you know, you can get really short-sighted because there's not a lot of money and you're constantly looking for approval and you're constantly looking for you know, support. Um, for me, it has been returning to academia and reading and seeing how huge the world of music and culture is. And just, just like, you, you know, I, 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 it's not even that like I need to stay grounded or I try to pursue it. It's just that, you know, a music career in the indie, in the spheres is this narrow, tiny little dot blip on the radar screen in this vast universe of like beauty. And so I just am like reading all the time, learning all the time. And I feel appreciative for my career. I feel so happy that people connect to the music, but I, it's, you know, all in context, it's one aspect of a much larger, um, sort of, task that I'm trying to do, which is talk about music and talk about women in music and learn about um, all these traditions that fascinate me. So that's how I keep my head on straight is just being a, a big nerd and, and being in school and doing research. Um, I feel like that's probably the, the main reason. I, I would say the other reason might be that um, my partner is a musician and a film composer and a jazz pianist. He's extremely talented, virtuosic pianist, not, not like me. Um, and I'll just sit around and he'll play piano, um, for hours and, you know, just listening to someone play giant steps like 30 times over and over and over again. Uh, that also brings good perspective. It's about the people you have around you, you know, um, people who are just 
true musicians and not just like in influencers. Do you know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so that's kind of like, it's the company you keep a, eh? and it's about always being, always learning, always reading, always, always learning something new. I think that is, is what keeps me grounded. Excellent. So it's, it's good people, uh, curiosity and, uh, I mean, for me as well, it's not just about being around good creative people, but just people that have a good creative energy, like a good, yes. a good, you know, a good kind of maybe they're into gardening or something as well. Oh my gosh, exactly. Like yeah. Just, yeah, just Making creative cakes. processes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Anything like that. I mean, I, I've had the same friends in LA since I moved here in 2006, mm. honestly. They're all That's just rare. like weird. They're all weirdos, you know. <laughs> they're all artists. It's, we've been friends since then, and I stay. We stay friends since, since then. I'm not interested in you know famous people uh, or anything like that. Um, and that's where people can go get a little haywire, you know, is when they start worrying about the wrong thing. Unless they want to be a star and that's, go for it. You know, I'm, I'm, ha I'm happy for them. That's not what I ever wanted, ever. So mm. uh, I just want to be around my books and my, my tea and my instruments and just live a peaceful life. You know what I mean? <laughs> and maybe like help help my students is a big is a big thing for me now too. Yeah. Um, Ramona, thank you so much. Thank you. I think that's everything. Thank you. Um, thank awesome. You. So that was Ramona Gonzalez, a.k.a. Night Jewel, chatting with me, Paul Hamford, for Lost and Sound. We had that conversation on July the 21st. And the album, No Sun is out on August the 27th. Um, so it's a good chance if you're listening to this and listen, you'll, unless you're listening to this podcast in the first few days it comes out, it'll be already out there. So um, really, 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 I cannot rate this album high enough. It's really, really just transcendental music of the highest order. Uh, thank you so much there, Romana, for your time. Thank you very much for Chris for organising that interview. Um, thanks to ESO for doing the theme music and to Kieran Yates in the UK for mastering the levels. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate the price of a coffee to my coffee page. Uh, that is ko-fi forward slash lost and sound. Um, your money, I assure you, will go on coffee, which does actually make me work very very well uh compared to if i have no coffee uh but you don't have to never any pressure to just happy to really share these interviews and have listens really that's what it's all about you can check out other english language podcasts from berlin by going on bearradio.org and also if you enjoyed listening hit subscribe give it a like really does help it really 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 does help i hope you're having an amazing one i hope whatever you do next in the day brings you some kind of magical realm of loveliness um i'll be back next week take care mm -hmm.